We industrialized animal agriculture. We didn't industrialize plant-based meat. And as a result, large-scale manufacturing of plant-based meat has not been explored to the degree necessary in order to really bring the industry to the modern day. Roughly speaking, it would cost you to buy a good quality chicken nugget, usually about $3.20 a pound. Right now, most plant-based meat is about twice that. What we need to do is get down to that $3.20. What we have been doing at Rebellious is we went back to first principles and we said, if we had to make this type of plant-based meat, we call it mix and form plant-based meat, it is we designed brand new production equipment from the ground up. We basically said, how would this look if we were doing it the right way? And then we built that new system, the Mach 1 production system. And that's how we started the very first step of industrializing the production of plant-based meat. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we talk with Christy Legali, CEO of Rebellious Foods. No harm, no foul. She joins us from Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Christy. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. With the conversations about climate change, with President Biden signing the Inflation Reduction Act, amongst other things, it has strict goals and targets and guidelines to reduce impact on our environment. In John Doerr's latest book, Speed and Scale, he states that food contributes to about 15% of all the greenhouse gases. What percent of that is caused by raising livestock and meat consumption. There are a lot of different metrics by which we can measure the impact of climate change because of the food industry in general. I believe the actual metric was about 14.5% of climate emissions actually could be tied back to animal agriculture specifically. Um, so it might be a slightly different metric than the one you just mentioned. Um, but it is a significant amount regardless. And it isn't the only impact that we see from industrial animal agriculture. Obviously, we see other impacts like pollution of waterways, runoff of nitrates and fertilizers and things like that for products that are plants that are grown to feed animal in the animal agriculture industry. And of course, use of antibiotics. So there's a lot of other fallout besides just climate change. I think the key word is industrial. Yes. Because mankind has obviously been eating meat from the very beginning. What you define as industrial? The history of what we consider now colloquially called factory farming of animals is actually a relatively recent phenomena, even recent within you know modern era history. So we actually didn't start industrializing the production of animals until actually around or after World War II. So it was actually closer to about 1940s to the 1960s that we really started to see the intensification of industrial animal agriculture. Culture. There obviously was meat processing, there were animal raising, there was obviously farms and small farms and operations prior to 1940 and even prior to 1920, but there wasn't the kind and scale that we see today, that it's very, very different. What changed and what happened in the 1940s? 
what changed is really the industrial revolution. So when we look at CO2 emissions in the atmosphere, we often point them back to really the mid 1800s and then really spiking up at around the 1920s to the 1940s when we really start to see CO2 and other related methane emissions start to really turn the curve for climate emissions and then even the temperature of the atmosphere or temperature of the earth. That was around, so it was industrialization overall that was applied to animal meat production that really changed. So it was alongside everything else. But industrialization of food is not so bad. We have far fewer hungry people in the world than we had in the 1920s. You know, there were rations, there were people had long lines. Maybe it's worth it. You know, there was a lot of very specific reasons for why people felt that industrializing animal agriculture was important. And you're absolutely right. First of all, bringing a chicken to every pot was a mantra that was shouted out by the government and president at the time, who basically said, we really need to feed everybody, have everybody should have access to high quality food and specifically high quality meat. And so we applied industrialization to the raising and slaughtering and processing of animals because we were trying to feed more people with high quality food. That was absolutely necessary. It was also only one way we could have gone about doing it. There were other ways that we could have gone about doing it. It didn't have to be the industrialization of animal agriculture. We could have industrialized pulse farming. We could have industrialized green beans and lentils. We could have industrialized other types of foods that, you know, took meat off the center of the plate, at least in the United States, where it is very much the center of the plate and focused on a non-center of the plate use of meat in our scaling of the food production system in the United States. But of course, there are other countries in the world where meat is also the center of the plate, you know, South America as well, but there are also places in the world where meat is not the center of the plate. There's a lot of different other models that could have been scaled, but didn't. I'm sure there are some really interesting interesting anthropological reasons for that. Overall, you know, this is what we did. And it's interesting because meat alternatives or the, you know, plant protein um, alternatives to meat, which were actually pretty interesting at the time um, prior to 1940, just didn't get scaled like industrial animal agriculture did. I am a generational vegetarian. I was surprised that only 5% of adult Americans call themselves vegetarians. I didn't know I belonged to this sliver, this uh, little group which doesn't eat meat. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's interesting to note for a country like India, where there's a very large population and roughly one third or potentially more, I haven't looked in a few years, but one third or more claim to be or are vegetarian, you know, they call themselves vegetarian. That is actually more people than all the people in the United States. <laughs> that means there are more vegetarians in India than there are people in the United States. But you're absolutely right. In the United States, really roughly 5% or less of people call themselves or identify as vegetarian. And as a result, you know, I could be a reflection of the focus on the center of the plate um, American cuisine. It could have been a reflection of just the values of the government and the values of decision makers being influencing a lot of other people about why we scaled animal meat. And as a result, it made it very inexpensive. And so it made it the center of the plate as well as made it accessible to pretty much every economic class. Could it have been the weather? 
<laughs> Could it have been the weather? I don't know. I, you know, we didn't have that many industrial greenhouses in those days. You need the meat. Is some of my meat-eating friends say in winter I need to eat meat. So it could have been the weather. Um, there is no scientific basis to my claim, but <laughs> maybe people felt that they need the fat. Perhaps. I mean, I think there's the individual person's choice and then there's the societal choice about what is our norms. If you go to a restaurant in the United States in 1975, you're not going to find a vegetarian option. Were people not vegetarian because they weren't buying those options? If they even were there, or were they just not any options? So they gave up. The resistance to vegetarianism and veganism in the United States has been very strong. You know, the desire not to accommodate those particular food groups is still largely the norm. However, it's changed a lot in the last 10 years, and it's changed a lot in the last 20 years. And I myself have been a vegan for about 27 years. And as a result, I've seen it go from just largely unavailable to somewhat available in certain places in the United States. Now, I can still travel easily to a new place in the United States and find no vegetarian or vegan options, but it's less and less common than it was when it was the 1990s, right? <laughs> As a traditional vegetarian, we are taught or intuitively know how to balance our meal. Mm -hmm. And I actually caution my meat-eating friends from just giving up meat and going all vegan or vegetarian because it's not just that you're eating plants or plant-based things. There is a whole nutritional balance, which is important. Yeah. And I, I think that that nutritional balance is true no matter what you eat. So if you are eating a lot of meat and you're not getting a lot of greens, you're not getting a lot of tomatoes, you're not getting lentils and pulses and fiber and things like that, which obviously makes up even the majority of foods. I mean, there are thousands of foods we can eat. Why is the bodies of chickens, pigs and cows so outsized in the menus of so many of our menus, so to speak, when other things are just as important? As generational vegetarians in different parts of the world know that humans can live incredibly successfully, if not even more successfully, without eating meat. But a balanced diet is going to be necessary whether you eat meat or not eat meat. And as a result, it becomes kind of the same attention to detail should be applied. I once met a man who told me he only ate meat. And he was serious. He only ate meat. He did not look well, that's for sure. So interesting about his decision to do that is he really kind of thought, well, you know, I'm getting enough protein, but what about B12? What about, you know, is he getting enough greens? Is he getting enough fiber? Is he getting enough calcium? Is he getting enough vitamin C? I mean, there's so many other things that we do need to consider when we consider a balanced diet. When you talked about menus, it made me smile because for vegetarians, when they look at the menu, they can decide in two minutes because there's usually one, <laughs> two items yes. on the entree or maybe just two items in the whole four courses of a menu. So they come show you the menu, they, you look at it and say, yes, I'm having this one item that you have on the menu. I find myself, you know, gravitating to restaurants that 
obviously have that traditional non-center of the plate use of meat. Um, there's a wonderful restaurant by my house called the Everest Kitchen, which is both Himalayan and Indian cuisine. Their menu is like largely default vegetarian. And then of course, they've got meat products as well. Um, they can make almost anything vegan. And it's really great. Same thing as my Thai friends who have really fantastic vegetarian options. You know, Hinden Chinese Mandarin Chinese also have, or Buddhist Chinese is actually what I meant to say. Also, those types of restaurants, you know, can be very default veg. I do tend to gravitate towards those wonderful, absolutely flavorful meals because they would already be well balanced for, you know, both nutrition and taste and flavor and palatability. So why did you become a vegan? What happened? I became a vegan because I cared about animals and I didn't want to eat animals anymore. I first became a vegetarian when I was a teenager and really wanted to avoid meat even before that. I remember being quite young and maybe 12 or 14 years old and looking at my dog and had somebody explain to me that in other parts of the world, they eat dogs and they farm them for meat. And it just broke my heart, of course, as a lot of people have deep and meaningful and relationships with animals and they're a part of their lives, they're a part of their family. Even people who farm animals, you know, have sometimes deep relationships with them. That is something I really wanted to honor about myself. Decided that I didn't want to eat animals if this is the sentient beings that they present to be. Over time, I also decided I didn't want to eat dairy as well because of my desire to just avoid the industrialized dairy industry in the United States and what that does to, to cows and baby cows and eggs as, as well. That industrialization of eggs in the chicken industry as we put them in tiny cages and we don't treat them very well. And I really didn't want to be a part of that. So what I found was that, especially once I went vegan, I actually didn't weigh very much. I'm 5'8". I think I weighed like maybe 90 pounds when I was 19 years old. <laughs> so I was very thin, maybe 100 pounds at most. And a lot of it's because I really didn't enjoy food that much. When I went vegan, I will never forget, I felt so much better because it turns out I was very allergic to both dairy and eggs. I have a pretty serious allergy to both, but a lot of people do. A lot of people have serious allergies to, to foods without understanding that it was an option to not eat those in my earlier years. I didn't know to cut them out of my life. And it turns out that I was a pretty well person. I just uh, didn't sit well for those. I remember going uh, vegan on a Monday and by Friday, pretty much every like congestion and lung problems I had was completely gone. <laughs> it never came back in 27 years. I did accidentally eat eggs at one point a few years ago, and that was bad news. <laughs> so... It seems to be kind of a fad now to have plant-based meat. You know, we have Beyond Meat, we have Impossible Burgers, and now Rebelous Foods. How is Rebelous Foods different? I do like to answer the question of like, why even have plant-based meat? It's kind of a funny concept. But since I actually did some interesting research on plant-based meat and the history of plant-based meat, and it turns out that humans have been replacing meat with what's called meat analogs or meat replacements. So something that is kind of made up to look like meat or made up to be... Tofu, for instance. Tofu is a good example, although I think tofu somewhat stands on its own. But there are even more extreme examples where people have taken tofu, injected a lot of flavors in it, and then tried to carve it into the shape of a chicken. <laughs> there is a couple of other earlier versions of tofu that were called dofu with a D, and some earlier versions of Indo-Chinese cuisine that had other versions of like kind of semi-made tofu that were also created to try to 
to look like meat. Like the recorded history of plant-based meat actually goes back about 2,000 years because we've known for a very long time as humans that meat has some detrimental health effects. And so people were trying to find ways to allow people not to eat meat. There are some really interesting ways that we've done that. And probably the most popular and the easiest and the most straightforward way was just to replace it with something that looked and tasted like it, but wasn't actually meat. That is why we have meat analogs even to this day is because they serve a role in people's lives. There's a convenience to having a hamburger. There's a convenience to chicken nuggets. And that convenience is valuable to consumers. But if we can replace that with a less harmful version of those same products, then you don't have to change the entire system. You can literally just pull one smaller lever and change it and allow them to kind of continue with their the convenience factor, the flavor factor, the ease of feeding your kids factor without the detrimental impacts of eating meat. So does your product taste like meat? Exactly. So at Rebellious Foods, we make plant-based chicken nuggets, tenders, and patties. And so they taste like processed chicken products. So they taste like chicken nuggets and chicken tenders and chicken patties. We make chicken sandwiches out of them, things like that. We are a little different than other plant-based meat companies is that we're really, really focused on democratizing plant-based meat for everyone. So to being able to produce plant-based meat at price parity with animal-based meat is our main goal at Rebellious Foods. And one of the reasons that plant-based meat is too expensive today, it's usually two to three times the cost, sometimes even more than that, versus the product it's replacing. The reason it is so expensive is because it costs too much to make it. And the reason for that ends up going back to that history we talked about earlier, we industrialized animal agriculture. We didn't industrialize plant-based meat. And as a result, large-scale manufacturing of plant-based meat has not been explored to the degree necessary in order to really bring the industry to the modern day. We make a lot of plant-based meat the same way we make things in our kitchen, just batch processing and trying to mix things together, kind of hoping for the best. That is not a good way to make plant-based meat, and it certainly doesn't replicate the size, scale, modernization of the 108 billion pounds of animal meat production in the United States alone. What Rebellious has been doing behind the scenes, our company name is actually Seattle Food Tech. Behind the scenes, we have kind of a corporate company called Seattle Food Tech, and then we sell under the name Rebellious Foods. Seattle Food Tech, I started in, in, in late 2017, early 2018, with this idea that I could actually bring a lot more and higher quality and better plant-based meat products if I could industrialize the production. And this goes back to your point, industrialization you know, may have caused some concerns, particularly around animal welfare, but industrialization itself actually does bring benefits to the consumer and it brings safety benefits. It makes food safer. It makes food more available. It makes food less expensive. Um, it makes foods more consistent. What we have been doing at Rebellious is we went back to first principles and we said, if we had to make this type of plant-based meat, we call it mix and form plant-based meat, which is a different type than high moisture extrusion that people probably hear a lot about, but represents a very small, tiny print of the market. A uh, mix and form production of plant-based meat is capable of making is basically the entire industry. And what we did is we designed brand new production equipment from the ground up. And we said, okay, we basically said, how would this look if we were doing it the right way? If it was processing all the 
proteins the right way, processing the fats the right way, bringing it all together so it was just right and high quality. And then we built that new system. We called it the Mach 1 production system. And that's how we started the very first step of industrializing the production of plant-based meat. So several years on, we're, we're still working on that. And in about 10 months, we hope to deploy our first commercial system that will bring down the cost of our plant-based meat products at Rebellious by 60%. So say you have your traditional chicken nuggets, a good quality one at that, and you have chicken nuggets made by your competitors and yours. How much would it cost me to buy theirs and yours? Roughly speaking, it would cost you to buy a good quality chicken nugget made out of a chicken, usually about $3.20 a pound. Right now, most plant-based meat is about twice that. It's about $6-ish a pound, sometimes as low as $5.50 a pound. So it's quite a lot more. And even Rebellious is selling our products closer to that $5.50 a pound range. What we need to do is get down to that $3.20 a pound range and be able to hit that price point that um, animals based chicken products are already at. And that's where we're headed with our new Mach 1 and then our future, what we call Mach 2 production system, is that it is deployed in order to produce those products at a much lower cost, much more high quality effort as well, and be able to bring those products to consumers at a price that is comparable to their chicken counterparts. So Seattle Food Tech has developed this technology to industrialize plant-based food production. Will they be selling the technology to other people or only to Rebellious? Right now, we're using it for Rebellious. We're, we feel the most impact that we can make with our technology is to get it in place, use it to make plant-based meat products at high quality and low cost and get it to consumers. Because at the end of the day, the most impactful thing we can do is be the change we want to see in the world, right? We want to take the hard steps that are hard, that any other manufacturer would be hard to take. So it's really hard to not only develop new food production equipment, but then to deploy new food production equipment. And so if we were to expect others to do that, they might do it. I'm sure we will have the opportunity in the future, maybe a few years out, maybe even just a couple years out, to be able to deploy our equipment for the use of others under licensing agreements or sales or other opportunities. But right now, best thing that we can do for the planet, for the animals and our health is for Rebellious to use our technology and get the best and most high quality plant-based meat at the lowest price out to consumers with our equipment. <laughs> but how will you convince the consumers to switch? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a lot of different ways that we can approach it. Rebellious serves two different markets. First of all, we sell into the what's called the mainstream CPG market, where we sell our products into Safeway, Albertsons, those types of uh, Whole Foods, Sprouts, those types of places where people do their everyday shopping. And the first thing we can do is, you know, have a good quality product. So they get to try it. They like it. They come back. The second thing is that they try it again and they find that the quality is good both times. So they come to trust the brand. That's important. And then finally, we bring down the price. And that's what keeps consumers coming back. That's what allows them to make that permanent behavior change from not only did I like it, I liked it again, and now I trust it and I trust it, but now it fits within my budget 
and then all of the needs are met for the consumer. And that's what Rebellious is going to be more capable of doing than anyone else in the industry right now, is being able to hit that price point and that high quality consistency, because consistency is just as important to the consumer as price is. Because people love to eat the same thing that they had last time because they loved it last time. <laughs> so how will you convince a person who has eaten meat as the center of their plate, how will you convince that person to put now on their plate a plant-based meat? There's a lot of different ways to do that. We don't do it alone, first of all. Plant-based meat education comes from a lot of different directions. There are NGOs that do it, nonprofits that do it. But also, we do this through another channel that we also serve. We also serve, in the United States, the National School Lunch Program. The National School Lunch Program is the program by which we funnel commodity goods such as chicken to be processed for use in public schools. So Rebellious, roughly half of all sales at Rebellious are to the National School Lunch Program. So rather than trying to convince every single person, you actually just convince the food service director to have the kids try these. And if the kids like them, and they'll tell you if they don't, the kids like them, then you have, you've gotten people to try it. Now they may be six years old or, you know, 15 years old, it is really important that they get to try plant-based meat, you know, in those early days when they, they still have the option, they can even choose other products if they want. That's an outreach opportunity for us. But it's not just that. A lot of schools choose plant-based because they want to make a conscious decision about their impact on the environment. Kids are learning this in school. They're learning about climate change and they're learning about impact even to animals and learning about their own human health. It's well understood that eating less meat is better for your health. We've known that for hundreds of years. On top of that, a lot of kids care about the welfare of animals and understanding the industrialization of animal agriculture means that you're going to have to understand that it's really hurtful and cruel to animals. Once kids get a chance to make that decision, when it's, it's available to them, they often make the decision for themselves to choose plant-based. Rebellious received funding up to $18 million? About $20 million, yeah. As women trying to break in in this industry, which is fairly male dominated. Mm -hmm. What were the challenges? How many times did you have to pitch? Oh, goodness. I usually have to pitch about 300 to 400 times per round. <laughs> it can really get up there. If it's a shorter round, it might be close to 150 times. Um, that means 150 one-hour meetings. It means 100, 300. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> I do hear from my male colleagues, that's way more than they usually have to do in order for success to happen. So did you say the male colleagues have to do more rounds? No, I'm sorry. They have to do less attempts at trying to reach investors, I would say, based on what I've asked them. I mean, like, how many investors did you talk to? Well, they'll say, well, I probably talked to 50 investors to get a $5 million round. I've done $5 million rounds and I easily had to talk to 150. I do find there's a difference. There's always, all, almost always a difference. Women are faced with a lot of barriers that are still somewhat invisible and somewhat are very visible. You know, women often don't even approach really ambitious entrepreneurial efforts because they are 
constrained by other parts of their lives, whether that be intensive caretaking or unexpected motherhood or things like that, that may have not even been their choice. It's one of the reasons that having good public policy around paid family leave and things like that are so important to the health of our economy, because when women are able to make some choices that are right for them, and maybe being a mom is right for them, and that's fantastic. But when they're allowed to make that choice, then you have a situation where women can really succeed in an economy that may not have originally been designed for them, but ultimately can be beneficial for them long term. You know, sometimes blatant sexism. You know, I have two bachelor's degrees and a master's degree in mechanical engineering. I had 15 years of mechanical engineering experience and five patents in manufacturing technology and tool development. And I can't tell you how many investors in the early days would say, well, this is a great idea. We love the idea for the company, but I just don't know if you're the right person to lead it. (laughs) And I was like, what would be the right person to lead it? Maybe somebody who doesn't have an X chromosome. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Like how many more credentials did I need in order to be the right person to lead it? But, you know, sometimes these things are just unbiased and sometimes you just have to really just be conscious of your of knowing those things are out there calling them out when necessary ignoring them when necessary and moving on going around people when necessary i think that's probably one of the best skills i ever developed is this person doesn't work try a different one there's almost 8 billion people on the planet i'm sure they could ask someone else <laughs> but that's important because the more we challenge it rather than accept it then we can start to make headway but it does get kind of exhausting after a while to feel like you're fighting upstream all the time um, with so many conversations with investors who don't you know, necessarily believe in you just because you have just as good a credentials as somebody who is male. If you had to offer one piece of advice or learning that you as a female entrepreneur pitching, what would you convey? I would say that you have to be ready to try again or even think about it as iterate, <laughs> you know is that you're never gonna hit it once the first time. You're never gonna get everything you need the first time, probably not the second time, the third time. And this is good advice for startups. It's good advice for starting a company. It's good advice for advocacy. (laughs) Life is not about one-shot wins. It is about iterating and trying again the second time, the third time. Like I said, 150 investors per round means that every time I talk to the next investor, I got better and better at it. And hopefully, I won't have to talk to as many investors in the future as I did in the past. I talk to a lot of female entrepreneurs who are kind of waiting for that shot, that one shot. I've never seen it. I don't know what it looks like. Everything I've ever had to do to start Seattle Food Tech and Rebellious Food has always been an iteration. Maybe we got a little what we needed the first time. and Maybe an investor put in $5,000 the first time, but the next investor, we got better at it and they put in $20,000. There's a lot of interesting kind of like flashy stories about like the founder of WeWork or other places where they just wrote him a check for $5 million. Well, that happens. It's happening again now with Adam Newman starting a recent business again, but it doesn't really reflect the research on long-term change in the world. So one of the best 
understandings that I have, or one of the best readings I've ever read is Jim Collins, Good to Great and Great by Choice, if you've read any of those. And it really shows that over history, it even recent modern history, over the last hundred years, the ability for companies to make true impact in the world comes from iteration trying and trying again, throwing, you know, as Jim Collins, you know, throwing bullets instead of cannonballs, you know, to win the war and really trying to refine and refine your process again. Big shot wins. Don't change things long term. Even big things like iPhones changing did not start as iPhones. Remember the iPod and remember the Apple and remember the, there were a lot of iteration before that. So I feel like women will get discouraged sometimes because not only are they having to face up against that iteration, but they're feeling a lot more resistance at every step of the way. But, you know, I think it's good to trust the process and trust an understanding of what's happened in the past. And also remember there are 8 billion people in the world. Somebody will definitely fund you. Somebody is going to out there to fund you. Yeah, only 150 at a time. You got a lot more people to talk to. (laughs) On that uplifting note, thank you so much, Christy, for coming on Mindful Businesses. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun to talk to you. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, hosted and produced by Vidya Ayer. We would love to hear from you. Send a voice note or an email with your questions or comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcast. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Buffalo, New York. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Roseanne Korean. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pashricha. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.